Good morning, everybody. Come on in, grab a seat. Happy Sunday to you all. I hope you had a great week. This is one of those weeks where it feels like, you know, 90% of your weeks, for me anyway, that 90% of your weeks, you have like nothing going on, and you're like, where did we do with all of our time? And this week for me was like, everything that I had ever scheduled at any point in time all happened on this week. So it was like meetings and preparing a sermon and doing stuff for school. And it's like, it's amazing how that happens. You have nothing going on the other four weeks of the month, but there's one week that's just like the end of the world. So uh, that's, that's very dramatic, by the way, very dramatic. But to me, it felt that way sometimes. So hopefully you had a more calm, mellow week. Um, hopefully you're happy to be here today. Hey, uh, big announcement. We have a new slides person. The back, Brett Anderson on slides back there. <laughs> Apparently that hell sermon last week was a little bit too intense. Let's have you do slides this week. Yeah, so Brett took a very, uh, took the easy passage last week and talked about hell and judgment. And he stuck me with this ridiculously hard parable that we're going to have to navigate today. So uh, would you pray with me and then we'll read. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness to us, Jesus, that um, you hold us to a different standard, Lord, as believers, as followers of you, Jesus. Um, And we love that you tell us that, that you speak to that, Jesus, that you cover that with grace and you empower us, Lord. um, We're not forced to... um, Grit and bear our Christianity, Jesus, our, our pursuit of you, our relationship with you, God. But yet there's this love that exists in mutual connection, Lord, between us and you, God. You pouring out a consistent, um, everlasting, powerful, never-ending love upon us, Jesus, and us responding um, with our love and our actions, Jesus. Um, we pray for us, God. Pray for us this morning, God, that you would help us to have clarity, Jesus, although parables are... At times, very straightforward, Jesus, we also wrestle with so much um, information and uh, application for our current day, Jesus, and I just ask that you would speak, God. Um, Come before you in your scriptures, knowing that you are king. These are your words, and Lord, I just pray that you would help me to to communicate that from your heart, Um, and that uh, as we leave here today, Jesus, that we would have um, something that would resonate with us, that we would be able to go and practice this week, Jesus. And I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, in 2010, so I graduated from the University of Oregon in 2010. It was the same year, I think, if my math is correct, that the, that the Ducks into their like, first Rose Bowl in like know, 15 years. I don't know. I have no idea how long it's been between Rose Bowls. But my dad got tickets. We drove down. They were playing Ohio State. They seemed to play in every single game of consequence. And uh, we went down there. We did like a quick 24-hour trip. We ate in and out like four times. Every single meal, because it was all just a bunch of dudes, and we're just like, we're just going to eat in and out, we're going to go to a football game, and then we're going to drive home. Uh, and so I got the first leg driving back from L.A. And uh, I did not grow up in a big city, did not grow up in a place that had like more than one lane of traffic. And so L.A., when it has like 27 lanes, and you're like, which one do I, how do I do this, which way do I go? Um, and I was really thankful for navigation, but as we came down off the grapevine, weaving down, there is a chance you have the opportunity to take an off-ramp and get on a completely separate highway and, uh, from I-5. And I-5 is, uh, without a doubt, the most obvious highway that runs through California. But I decided to, what I thought was the right move, 
and pivot off of the grapevine onto a different highway. Uh, and I don't even, to this day, I don't even know what that highway was. It still remains a mystery to me, but obviously it's important because I was on it. Uh, and as we're driving back, it's foggy, it's the middle of the night, my brother-in-law and I are driving, we're listening to the, and, and the navigation keeps going, turn right, take this off-ramp, you need to get back on I-5. And I was like, that's weird because I'm on I-5, so this is strange. And so for miles, an hour, I'm on this wrong highway, and it's telling me all the time, did you get off here? You should probably get on I-5. And I'm like, eh, I'm on I-5, so I don't know what's going on here. And then we get to Bakersfield, and I go, uh-oh, we're not supposed to be in Bakersfield. Uh, and out of uh, fear of being found out, brother and I, my brother-in-law and I go, uh-oh, we've got to find some way back to I-5 without anybody knowing, because I don't want to get the grief that, oh, you, well, look at the college graduate, can't drive down I-5, all right? Obviously, you went to Oregon, and you know, all that. So I can't deal with all that, okay? So we get on this, like, random road. I think it's, like, 26 or 48. I have no idea what it was, but it was foggy, so nobody could tell me we're on I-5. So I was like, it's good. It's foggy. No one will know. We get on. We drive for, like, an hour, and then eventually we just get sneak back onto I-5, and everybody's still asleep in the car. And brother and I, my brother-in-law and I still talk about it today. It's, like, a joke. Like, it's called the old, like, 48 or something like that, this old path we took to get back onto I-5. But what was amazing was that despite every single warning and communication and obvious things, I was like, no, I, I'm pretty sure I've got it figured out. I don't think I need this. Like, I, I think I can get there. It was like in the office and Michael Scott drives into the lake and he's like, it's telling me to go straight. And he drives into the lake. Uh, it's similar to that. Uh, and I think that sometimes like in our pursuit of the Lord, we have these like ro- these mile markers, these road posts that kind of tell us like, hey, you're kind of getting off on the wrong way here. You need to get back to this. And it's kind of a constant recalibration, a constant coming back to center because our culture kind of teases us and um, entices us to go different ways or because culture is this way, we feel like we have to go this way and we get confused and muddled in the process. And I think what Jesus invites us into is an understanding of grace that yes, you're gonna get off the path, but there's this goal of constantly being able to come back to this path that we know is the right path. And if you've been following us to the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Jesus is constantly preaching about this new path. He's saying, hey, listen, there's a new way that I'm bringing to the table, that I'm offering to people to get away from their religiousness and their works-based ideas and come to this idea of grace and truth and sacrifice and love that manifests itself in these amazing works. And he critiques the Pharisees because they spend so much time focused on preserving this old way of doing things. And Jesus keeps coming back and saying, your old way is not going to work. You're pursuing the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. We've got to come back to this. And it's no different today. We're going to see two pictures of, as Jesus portrays a parable, his last two parables. And at the end, which Brett talked about last week, um, we're going to conclude Jesus' ministry. We've been following through Matthew, and now in 26, we're going to start to move into this end of Jesus' uh, physical appearance on the earth, culminating in the cross and the resurrection. But he gives these last two parables that I would confess that in my walk with Jesus, I have always kind of glossed over. I'm like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Sure, let's move on. But if you look at it in the context of what Jesus is presenting to us, we know that this is a, Jesus is concluding his message to the Pharisees, concluding his message to the people, and saying that this is important. 
We have to get off of this path. We have to get back onto this path. There's a consequence that happens if we don't pursue that way. And although we can look at it and go, yeah, in the context, it has all of this significance at, the, at that present time. It is just as much bearing for us today. So let's look in Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. If you know a lot about the Old Testament, you know that there's this contrast between wise living and foolish living and how we prepare for that and how we live that way. And here's what he says, that the characteristics of the two different groups. For the, when the foolish took the lamps, they took no oil with them. So a, a lamp, long story short, lamp was a clay pot. It had a wick in it and it had oil in it. And you had to con- constantly feed the oil so it would soak into the rags so that you could light it and it could burn forever. You had to have a lot of different, uh, a lot of oil to constantly keep those lamps lit. But the wise, verse 4, took, flat, took a flask of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. And so there's this picture that's created. Two different groups. Two different groups of women, essentially bridesmaids. We've been kind of put that in our category today. Who are eagerly awaiting the arrival of this bridegroom. And it goes on and it's delayed. If you know about weddings in general, it wasn't any different now than it was back then. Weddings never start on time, right? And so... The bridegroom, they're waiting for him to, to come to the house. What would happen was the bridegroom would come to the father's house, the father of the bride, and then he would take the bride and they would walk in a wedding procession back to the groom's house where the wedding feast would begin. And then it would kick off this week-long celebration, which, by the way, I think we should bring back. Just a week-long, just festival. Never be able to do it. That would be awesome, though. Uh, we bring them back. There's this huge wedding procession. So it was at night. You had to have torches lit. You had to be a part of the wedding feast. You had to be a part of that procession. So it was this crazy thing. Everybody was excited about it. They knew the bridegroom. They knew the bride. They were excited. And they had these lamps. They're ready to get into the procession. And as he's late, they fall asleep, which isn't really an indictment on them. Like later on, when the disciples fall asleep in the garden, it like condemns them for falling asleep. But this is just natural. It takes waiting. We're tired. They fall asleep. And the bridegroom comes. And they wake up and they go, oh, we got to get going. And the people that had brought oil, they were wise. They put oil on the lamps. They were able to burn them. And they ask, the foolish ask, and they say, hey, can we have some of your oil? Like, if we give you oil, we won't have any. So I can't give that to you. I won't be able to make the wedding feast. They say, go get the oil and then come back. So they do. They go get the oil. They come back. They do the procession to the house. They arrive at the house. And here's what happens. Afterward, verse 11 The other versions came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. So now this group of unwise people has done more work. They've gone and got the oil. They come to the house. They knock on the door. And somehow the bridegroom answers, which seems strange to me. Like, I think if it's the wedding feast, the groom's not the person answering the door. If he's got wealth and has a big house, that's probably not going to happen. But in this instance, he does. Opens the door. Let us in. I don't know who you are. 
And I, and I imagine in my head what that must have, it, it, it's a parable, it's a story, it's not a factual story, but that image of like, we're friends, we've, we've been around each other, we've, we've done life together, like we know your soon-to-be wife and the families therein, and he goes, I, I, have, I have no idea who you are. And it's the same picture as earlier in Matthew when Jesus warns the Pharisees, says, Lord, Lord, we've done all these, this stuff in your name. And he says, depart from me. I don't, I don't know who you are. And it's this final kind of stinging picture of what it means for those who have been given options to choose between two different outcomes. On the one hand, the wise living, the people who did what they needed to do, and they were able to arrive at the wedding feast. And then those who didn't and missed it. And the picture is presented of the Pharisees who try so hard to grit and bear their life with, the, with God. They take all the works and they bundle them all together and they have this high expectation, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but they thought that high expectation was going to earn them privilege in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, you missed it. You're going to miss it. And the image created is so jarring. And it gives us one more parable here to round out um, his kind of clouded sayings. For, so he goes on to explain this word for as connecting the two parables together. He says, just to go a little bit farther with this information, here's another parable. For, it will be like a man going on a journey. And he called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another, he gave to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and he went away. I love that line, each according to his ability, as if to say that there are people who are given a little bit more, and that's just the way it is. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. So talent, we refer to nowadays, this word talent is referred to like a skill or an ability or like an affinity for something. But in, in a Jewish culture and in this time, first century, a talent was like a huge amount of money, about 10,000 denarii, which is a day's wages, right? So 10,000 in each talent. So he's giving a significant sum of money to these people. Saying, here, I'm going to give you these talents, this actual Greek accounting term for the largest amount of money I can give. This is the largest accounting term in, in Greek accounting. He gives it to him. He says, listen. And I don't think he even tells them what to do with it. He just says, here, according to your ability, here's these different talents. One gets five and makes five. One gets two and makes two. And one takes one talent and buries it. Now, before we critique this person, go, this is a strange way to approach your money, as if nobody in here has ever buried gold in their backyard. Don't tell us. It's a secret. I'm not going to ask you to expose that, all right? But in this time, that was normal. In fact, it was often considered the easiest way to preserve and keep money, to keep it safe, was to bury it, all right? Now, in our culture, we bury it because we don't want anybody to find it or because... We're a dog, or because we're, uh, we have some down the road, we want people to uncover it, or whatever. But this time, it was actually seen as a feasible way to keep your money safe. And after a long time, verse 19, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. 
He said, look at what have you given me? What's, what's, what have you done with the talents that I've given you? And he who had five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, which he gets the most amount, but he still counts it as little. And I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And the master said to him, Look, it's the same response. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Three people. Two responses are the same. One is very different. So two people go, look, master, I I took your money and and I went and I doubled it. It doesn't matter the amount necessarily, but the point is fruitfulness. I did it. You gave me this. I took advantage of that opportunity. I made something from it. And here, well done. It doesn't matter if you were given two and made four or if you were five and made ten. The point is you did something with it. And then this response, he doesn't come to the Lord and say, I, here, I have the one you gave me. He has this whole long excuse for why he didn't do anything. He said, I thought you were, you were, I was afraid of you. I was afraid of losing it. I was afraid of not doing the right thing. I was afraid of screwing up somehow. And so I took it and I buried it. I just said, there. Or maybe his motivation may have been that he was thinking the master would never come back. He could keep it for himself. We don't know. It's kind of murky. But the point is, he didn't do anything really productive with it. He just took it, he buried it in the sand and said, all right, walk away. And he says that he was afraid that the master was a hard man, an intense individual, and he thought that if he didn't do the right thing, he was afraid of doing what was wrong or whatever, that he was doing the right thing. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, what a hard pivot. That's how you want to end your kind of like illustrative ministry, Jesus. You want to end with that statement? This casting out of this unfruitful individual in the story? I think it's interesting that, or it's, it's puzzling, that this master would say, you could have at least put it in a bank. If you're going to store it somewhere, at least store it somewhere where it can do something. 
You're taking it and burying it. It doesn't accomplish any task. But for a Jewish culture and who he's talking to in this Jewish audience, they would have thought that what that individual was doing was the wise thing to do. And so the perceptive is that, wow, Jesus' mission and his ministry is so counterintuitive to the way that we would choose to operate. It doesn't line up with how we would perceive the right way of doing things. And so this individual thought he was doing the right thing. The people who were listening were like, well, the person who buried it did something that was wise. I would have done the same thing to not lose it. This story, these stories illustrate for us the consequence, both good and bad, of Jesus' mission of his message to us as individuals. And it's so hard to to look at this passage and not just go, okay, this is written in Matthew. It's to a Jewish audience. It's for those individuals to understand the gospel. And then to take it from that context and take a parable like this and give it to us in 2021 in America and explain how this parable is supposed to jive with who we are and what our struggles are. So I have a few takeaways that I want to I tell you about before I come to close things out. Or it's, it's going to take a long time to close things out, but uh, not that long, not that long, but longer than it maybe it took to read those. So a few takeaways. The first thing that I want to talk about is, is what these talents are. Like if we take the idea this is about money in that time, is it the same for us today? And commentators have many different interpretations of what these talents are but they have a unified around it, most likely referring to time, ability, or perhaps even money. Or we call it like time, talents, and treasures. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of time, talents, and treasures. Good. It's pretty common in Christian circles to talk about like what you do with your time, what you do with your money, and what you do uh, with your ability is called stewardship, right? And so we have this interesting picture that the treasure Although we would love to to metaphorically say, oh, it's about your ability. If you've got the ability to to do music or you're a really savvy business person, then that's your ability. That's your talent. Go and do that for the glory of God. But it could also literally mean money. It could also literally mean what you do with your finances. Now, this is why it's hard to hear that. I think in our culture these days, we have a very protective idea of money. Jesus says that what we do with your money shows where your heart is. That's tough. And weeding through that, like how you understand that, well, my kids need clothes, but do they really need clothes? Like, where can I get these clothes from? And weeding through all the nuances of that. Or a desire for wanting something like a new sweatshirt or a new car or whatever. How do we weed through that? Is it wrong to have those desires? Is it wrong to spend our money on those things? That's murky and that's really up to the individual to decide about where the Lord is leading them. But to be proactive and to think about what you do with your treasure, yeah, it's important. But I'd like to talk about a potential fourth talent. Relationships. What we do with those. Parents to children, teachers to students, in my context a little bit, bosses to employees, siblings to siblings, and friendships, etc. My wife and I, over COVID, got really into uh, competition baking shows. Is anybody here? It's okay, by the way. It's okay to admit that you really like competition baking shows, all right? 
or cooking shows in Georgia. You guys know that they show uh, the, the Food Network in courthouses because it's like nobody really is emotionally invested in it. You can just kind of mindlessly watch it. There's no, like, nothing going on. So like, I'll just watch the Food Network, I guess, while I'm awaiting my trial or whatever. Uh, anyway, competition baking shows, there's a lot of them. But they always kind of try to play up the drama, you know? They're like, there's like a, oh, this cupcake is underbaked. And then there's like this, like, simple crash where it's like, and like scans to somebody and they're like, shocked or whatever. It's like they try to play up this drama. It's like, yeah, okay, this is interesting. But there's another baking show that I don't know if you guys know of. I mean, you do. The Great British Baking Show. I noticed not a lot of, not a lot of guys said that they like the Great British Baking Show. I like it, all right? So it's fine. Uh, and at the end of the Great British Baking Show, we're like, my wife and I are watching, and we're like, what do, they, what do they get if they win the Great British Baking Show? Nothing. They get like a, a dish that says, like, you're the Great British Baking Show champ. They don't get any money. So you're telling me that a mediocre cook on Nailed It gets $10,000, but the best baker in Britain gets nothing. What a strange weirdo. But then I thought about how I watched the show, and there's all this drama on the, on the competition baking shows on Netflix. And if you watch Top Chef, it's the same thing. They get in these teams and they capture these moments where like, they're, they're like fighting with each other. And they're like, oh, and you're like watching. You're like, oh my gosh. You develop all these narratives about the people you're watching. Like, and they play up that drama because we love reality TV for some reason, even though it's not really reality. I can't go into that right now. Um, but the point of it is, in the Great British Baking Show, like, every time the person is, is are they judged, like they're judged before the, the people, all the people like come together, they sit really close to each other, and they hold hands, and they just kind of huddle together. They just like care so much about each other. And you're like, wow, America's really weird, you know? <laughs> like, we would rather watch people tear each other's heads off over cupcakes than watch like people be like, we really care about you, we want you to do really well, this is going to be awesome. Why the heck do I bring that up? Uh, I think there's a genuineness about the pursuit of following Jesus. That if it's not based in this like competitive nature or comparing ourselves to other people, we can be free to like live into that identity. We're free to love each other and free to love ourselves and, and have an image about ourselves that is about that Jesus' view of us. But if we muddle it with everything else about the world, then we quickly lose the focus. And we get off track, and we got to recalibrate and come back. Uh, my brother-in-law, Tyson, uh, decided that he wanted to run a marathon before, his, before he turned 30 and before his third child was born. Uh, and the crazy thing about it was he did it yesterday. He just woke up and, and ran 26.2 miles. And as we're, so I have a Nike Plus app, and on the Nike Plus app, it shows, you, shows my miles and what I'm running, and then it shows Tyson's miles and what he's running and so training for the marathon, he tells me he's going to run a marathon, and I send this kind of like jab where I show, here's my miles for the year. It's like 400 something, okay? No big deal, all right? And he's got like 100, and I'm like, you're almost there, man. And they're kind of like teasing him, like, you're never going to get past me in mileage. Yesterday, he passed me for the year. He ran a marathon, and I was bummed. Because I was like, man... You're having a third kid. You ran a marathon before you're 30. Checking all these boxes that I wanted to check but never checked, you know? 
And I just thought about how uh, competition puts us in a place where we just can't be excited about somebody else. We have to look at them and go, what's their ability? What's their talent? How much have they been given? How come I don't have that? And we forget that in the end, God gives us, each one of us, something according to our ability. Yeah, you could have a lot of money in a nice house and a great thing going on there, and that's awesome. There's no judgment there at all. You could not have that, and it's okay, because that's not the measure of your success, right? Now, here in our world, we look at that, that would be a measure of our success, having a big house or property and a boat and a big truck and all that stuff. But that's not the measure of Jesus' success. He gives five talents to someone, they double, they make ten. He gives two talents to someone, they double and make four. The point is the individual did something with it. They practiced something that brought about a greater view of the kingdom. They did something with it. So you could be any one of these categories. Brett, oh, Michael's doing it now. Yeah, I think we all knew that that was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we have all these different areas that I would, I would, I would consider you to think about what are you doing with them. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to think about. God gives us these things. He gives you children of your parents. He says, steward these children. They're gifts. How are you going to lead them? Are you going to leave it to culture to kind of like tell them where to go or school or the pastor of the church or the Sunday school teachers to guide them in their spiritual journey with Jesus? Or are you going to take control over it and lead them? That's up to us. What we decide to do with that has to do with the, with the dividend. And we don't control the outcome in that situation. True. At the end of our life, we go before Jesus and go, Lord, I stewarded my children. I did the best I could to steward my kids. The outcome is out there. Number two, uh, this is interesting talking about like the circumstances of what's happening here. Obviously, we talked a little bit about um, the Pharisees and their perspective of Jesus and what they felt about him. The point is in this first passage, we talked about these bridesmaids and they're missing the Messiah. That is really the last big jab towards the Pharisees where Jesus says, listen, you're trying so hard and you're going to miss it. That is hard to hear, that that is even a part of the ministry of Jesus, for me. I know theologically it's very unified with the unifying theme of how exclusive following Jesus, when the, the Jesus gospel is, but at the same time, how powerful it is to hear from someone, especially Jesus, to go, there's a difference between people that have it and don't. We're given a unique opportunity to pursue Jesus. And, and I would hope that at the end of our life, we would look back and go, did I help people move from this confused, clouded, works-based idea about Jesus into a freedom of following Jesus? And I hope that at the end we could see that. But the, but the story is the same for us here today. Maybe some part of you believes that Jesus looks at what you're doing and goes, wow, you're doing so many good stuff. I know you're not walking with me, but you're doing so much morally good things, which really we're saying, by the world standards, it's good. Because the world has a whole different ethic about morals. Okay? Totally. And we can go, oh, the world's got all these different ideas about morality. 
the world is not the church. The world is not supposed to be walking in step with Jesus. We expect that. But the church is supposed to be this proactive catalyst for change in that culture. Through people being transformed and walking with Jesus and then moving that culture back towards a love for God. Not moving it back towards like some peripheral idea that is kind of bundled with Christianity, but actually moving back towards Jesus. And um, I think we today are given a unique opportunity. The Pharisees had a unique opportunity in their time. Think about that. Think about the timing of Jesus' ministry. These are, this, is not a, this is not a fictional story. This is a real event. Jesus comes down to earth and walks among the people, and people were there, and they saw him, and they talked with him, and they experienced his teachings firsthand. What a unique opportunity to respond to him. And yet, even when Jesus was right at the front of who they were, he was right in front of them, they didn't accept him. What makes us think that at our point, in our reality, in our existence, that we don't have the same stuff that clouds us from truly pursuing Jesus? If Jesus is smack dab in front of these people, why did they reject him? Because he was so conflicting with their ideas of who God is and what he was supposed to do. Is that the same for you, I wonder, or same for me in my life? He's right here. Got 2,000 years of history to prove his existence and to hear his teachings. And now we're clouded by all this peripheral stuff. We've got to get back understanding who God is. Number three. This is what to say about our efforts. One commentator stated that being ready for the coming of Christ is not something that can be shaped or passed on. It's an individual manner. I once heard a pastor say to me, uh, we all would agree we're not as close to Jesus as we would like to be, but we are as close to Jesus as we choose to be. For a long time, I thought that like Christianity was something that just kind of happened to you. You kind of sit back passively, you read your Bible, and then through that time, like, yeah, you just kind of become changed. And when I went through myself with the church and kind of and moved on from that, in that season, I said, well, I just reject everything about all this stuff, and I'm kind of coming back to, like, focusing on Jesus when I was younger. And there's a reality that we have a role to play in our spiritual formation. We have a role to play in our spiritual formation. It actually takes effort. And by the way, we apply this to a million other things in our life. Becoming a better teacher, becoming a better business owner, really taking care of our lawn. Like, we're always, like, very proactive about that, right? We're like, okay, I got to do all these different things, and I get really excited about it, and I put the, I want to know how to do it well. Last weekend, my father and I went to cut firewood. I've never cut firewood in my life. And I know you could, like, get permits and go cut down trees and then cut it out and then go split it at home. So we did that. We cut down this massive tree and we realized there's a lot of things we would do differently next time. Like we wouldn't cut a ponderosa pine because it's full of knots. When you try to split it, you end up with like six pieces that you can't even use. But I think about our pursuit of Jesus that it's like that. Yeah, we constantly learn. Like there's so, we, as we go along, we go, that's not working. We have the freedom to come back and refresh and learn from people. And we apply this to every single aspect of our life. But for some reason, when we're walking with Jesus, we expect way too much of ourselves we have to be perfect. We can't screw up. We can't get in an argument with our wife or yell at our kids. Not that I've done that, but I'm saying if I did, that'd be a problem, right? Or we can't, like, fail. We can't screw up. 
Or on the other side, we go, yeah, it's cool. I'll do whatever I want. Jesus loves me. It's fine. We have to find that middle ground that there's effort involved in this. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, uh, Outliers, talks about how people are given these great opportunities to be successful. And some of it has to do with certain circumstances. But he says this about individuals who are given a unique opportunity. Like, a, like Bill Gates getting the chance to work with a computer when he was in high school, which was a rare occurrence for anybody. He was given that opportunity and that shaped who he was in the future. He said, individuals are given a unique opportunity to work hard. And I believe that about Jesus and following Jesus too. We've been given an awesome opportunity. We're here, where we're at. Jesus is alive. He's reigning in our hearts. The Holy Spirit's empowering us. But we still have to work at that pursuit of Jesus. If we don't, then we're letting us be morphed and moved around by every single idea that goes back and forth in our culture or in the church. But if we constantly are coming back to we have responsibility over our spiritual formation, then we have the opportunity to take measures to do that. And last but not least, stewardship. Stewardship is one of those things that is a very Christianese term, being a good steward. Here's what it means. Take an inventory of what God has given you. Maybe your kids are grown, they moved out of the house, you're kind of empty nesting, and you've got all this time. What would God call you to do at that time? Maybe you've worked really hard, you're a successful business owner, and so you have a lot of income. What is God calling you to do with that income and that money? Maybe you have little kids, and you're just kind of in triage mode. You're just kind of like, I just got to, if I can just make it to nap time, that's the goal. And then if I can make it to dinner time, that's the goal. All right? And every single day is kind of like that cycle. What can you do with, you've been given kids. Are you kidding me? Little, tiny creations of God made in his image, and God gave that to you? He said, here, there's no, there's no prereq, by the there's no test about this. We're just going to, here's a kid. And you go, okay. What do I do? I would argue that that is, a, that is, like a, is a powerful gift, talent that God has given a lot of people. And how we pursue that and steward that, their souls, that, that's a huge responsibility. So how do we approach that as parents to steward, to love, We have to be proactive about that, right? Can't be reactive. Do you, do you do things in your family, in your life, that have a goal to them? Are there certain practices your family has because you want to move forward in your pursuit of Jesus? My wife and I have started doing something called Sabbath. And by started doing it, we've done it once in the last four weeks, but we've started doing it, right? When we first started doing Sabbath, it was like, how the heck do you do this with little kids? There's nothing restful about trying to get these kids to, like, to, to bed and to figure out meals and stuff like that. And so it's contextual based upon our, our own existence, but at the same time, we try to do these things because we're like, I want my kids to know that, that they're loved and just pause in the week just to, just to bless them. And then last Saturday, 
or a few Saturdays ago, I did this like blessing over my two boys, and they were sitting at the table, and there was just like this Jewish blessing you do where you put your hand on the heads of the kids, and you go, you know, Lord bless you and keep you, Lord make his face to shine upon you, and Lord give you his presence, and with that, his peace. And I started crying. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is powerful. But it's only because I carved out the space to actually do that. Now, I could look at my kids and go, yeah, he throws stuff. He's tackling him over there. He's throwing the books over there. He's screaming for some reason. They're running their trucks to the hallway and running it into the wall. And though I told them so many times, please don't do this. But in this moment, I'm like, these are little followers of Jesus. That'd be the chance to cultivate. And so I was overwhelmed in that moment because it was like, if you just pause and think about that, which we don't do often, pause and think, oh my gosh, what a gift to be able to do that. Here's a quote from Mother Teresa. She says this. Spread love everywhere you go. First of all, in your own house. Thank you, Michael. Give love to your children, to your wife, your husband, to a next door neighbor. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better or happier. Be a living expression of God's kindness, kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile, and kindness in your warm greeting. It sounds a little bit religious. There's something that you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. You have to work towards that. It doesn't happen overnight. But to be a living expression of God's kindness, that's powerful. But look at the, look at the progression. It's your own house First. I can talk about loving my students all I want in the classroom and build all these routines around community and stuff like that, but if I don't go home and love my kids, you know, what am I doing? And so, I would encourage us today to know that we've been given something, whether that's an opportunity, whether that's people in our life or money or wealth, relationships, whatever it may be, and for us to introspectively take inventory of what we're doing with that. We do it with our bank account all the time. Where's all this money going? Oh, that's the problem. And we fix it. Do we do the same thing in our walk with Jesus? Wow, how am I so off base and like my, why am I, why am I getting angry in this situation? What's happening in me that I'm not stewarding this? Instead, I'm kind of like embittered towards it. Take an inventory, take stock. What has God given you? What's he calling you to do with it? I don't want to call it any specific groups or anything like that. That's not the point of this. The point is for us to just take inventory in and of ourselves. And so I just want to encourage you as we close out and we get close to the end of Matthew to know that God loves you, cares about you, but he's given you something to do. Jesus has expectations, make no mistake about it. I know in our culture right now, it's like you shouldn't have any expectations of people, which is in and of itself an expectation of people. But that's real. I get if you you looked at your marriages or your relationships with people or your coworkers, you would know that most of the arguments you have are about what? Expectations. I expected you to do this. And I would encourage us to know that Jesus has those same expectations for us. He has not the same, but he has expectations for us. His are perfect. They're rooted in kindness. They're rooted in our benefit. They're rooted in worship. And with those expectations comes accountability. God holds us accountable to that. 
in good and bad ways, successful or unsuccess, he holds us accountable to that. While it can be frightening or scary or concerning, the reality of it is how we live each day and what we do with what God gives us, it matters in the course of eternity. We can be on the wrong path, going the wrong way, being reactive, constantly being warned to come back. Let's get back on this train. Let's get back on this road. And yet continue down that path because it's easier. We think that we're doing the right thing by some arbitrary standard. Whatever it may be, God would call us to come back. I want to encourage you this week to do one thing. One thing. Take an hour at some point in this week and just turn off your phone. Sit with your family and just be in that moment. If you really want to go the next layer with it, Take 10 minutes and just be silent. And capture the power of just being in that moment with your kids or your family. If you have kids, I would encourage you to do a blessing over them. Be proactive in that. And be in that moment with them. Be intentional with that which you've given. And so I hope that that encourages you today. I hope it, it sparks something in you. Um, I'm going to have our musician come back up who I know your name. I think it's Josh. Yes! All right. Uh, let's pray, and then we're, we'll, uh, we'll close it out. <laughs> you're right. You're good. Uh, Jesus, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we're blessed to be your people. We're blessed to be in your kingdom. We're blessed to be people of your kingdom, Jesus. And we know, God, that this world throws us so many different curveballs every single day. And we thank you that we're constantly welcome to come back to the truth of who you are. And know that you've called us into something. By your grace and by your power, Jesus, your Holy Spirit enables us to be able to live this way. And you cover us with your grace. So we bask in, in the beauty of that, Jesus. There's no other grace like that. There's no other love like that that's poured out on us with such passion and with such consistency in our life, Lord. And so we pray that our response to that would be a resonating intentionality with the way that we live our life. That we wouldn't just live in reaction to what the world is doing. We would proactively find ways to be your truth, to be the gospel, to be the hands and feet um, of your truth, of who you are, of your body. Lead us into that this week. Guide us by your Holy Spirit um, to know your truth and to understand who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to end by just concluding with one story. Um, there's a famous musician in, in Las Vegas. His name is Penn Gillette, part of the Penn and Teller duo. And you guys know that's kind of an old reference. Staunch atheist. Militantly atheistic. And... Uh, there's a video of this online. After one show, this guy came to him. Random guy. We don't know who it was. We didn't write a book. We didn't write a blog post. Nothing. And he comes to Pendulet, who was a devout atheist. And he says to him, Hey, I want to give you this Bible. I, I, loved your, I loved your comedy. I enjoyed every single bit of it. I want to give you this Bible. And then he left. Penn went on to post a long YouTube video about how floored he was by this man's simple gesture. 
and his ability to just come to him with boldness, to a guy he knows is extremely atheistic, militantly atheistic, very opposed to any religion of any kind, and to give this to him. He's completely flabbergasted by it. And he always said, I don't respect people who believe that there's a heaven and hell and don't minister and don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or getting eternal life, whatever you think that is, well, it's not worth telling them because it'd be socially awkward. If you think that that's socially awkward to do that and that's why you don't do it. And atheists think that people shouldn't proselytize. Just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? So from an atheist perspective, he says, if you believe there's a heaven and hell, believe that that's real, believe that God is transformative, but you don't talk about it or you shirk the responsibilities of it because you're afraid that people are going to think that it's awkward, this is an atheist saying, he doesn't respect that because you have to really despise somebody to not give them something that you know is true. So my encouragement to us today is to know there's power in what we do. May you walk in that, may you find courage to share with your coworkers and uh, love the people around you and your kids and know there's value in what you're doing. And be bold with that. Let's go ahead and stand.